Welcome back to the program. Father Lewis, will you lead us in a prayer? If you if you have a scripture, it looks like you're unprepared for a scripture. I'm unprepared the heavens, for scripture. But you know scripture. So <laughs> you can just weave a scriptural reference into your prayer. How about okay, that? That would be good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Good and gracious Lord, who called Peter and Andrew from their career as fishermen to be fishers of men, we give you thanks and praise for the calling of our seminarian and seminarians throughout the world who this year will be ordained to your holy priesthood. May they serve well, may they serve with humble and joyful hearts, and may the people of God entrusted to their care be brought closer to you in all things. And we ask your blessings upon our program this morning and all of our listeners. All this and all of our bless- uh, your blessings we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Great. Thanks, Father. Appreciate that. So today on Inside, I want to explore... Almost like the not just the genesis of a vocation. I had on a sister, religious sister, from the Sisters of Life. What okay. a cool order! Yeah, right. Uh, and um, uh, the Sisters of Life. You've heard of Priests for Life. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of Seminarians for Life? I have. Yeah. Okay. So funny story. There was a, a uh, back in when I was on the West Side. Carrie, uh, Carrie and I lived in Federal Way for a long time, and there was a seminarian coming out of the parish that we were a part of, and he was down at Mount Angel. And he um, was there uh, in the seminary, and all of a sudden he saw this big banner go up. And he looked at it, and he's like, I am going to tear that down. And the, ba- and the banner was, Seminarians for Life. And he's like, Seminarians aren't supposed to be seminarians for the rest of their lives, but only <laughs> for a few years, right? <laughs> I, he was serious. It was so funny. <laughs> Not realizing that this was about standing up for life. Um, <laughs> However, uh, you spent a lot of years in the seminary, mm-hmm. and uh, I spent five years in the seminary, and s- seminary comes from a word that a seed, seed is sown, and it's supposed to take root, and it's supposed to blossom forth as you're discerning a priestly vocation. I want to explore that with you. I want to explore seminary formation with you, and it, it's a great chance for you to reference some of the, you know, some of the stories of your own time in the seminary and mm-hmm things that you've, again, learned and, and heard of along the way, because you host seminarians mm-hmm. regularly. They come to your parish to have their um, like pastoral guidance and opportunities to serve. Um, and I want to relate it to the listeners. The listeners who, the great majority of them are not seminarians, will never be seminarians, but we're all called to be disciples. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, are you ready? Yeah, I think so. Let's dive in. <laughs> so... One of the things that I love to do is get a sense of the whole. And, and sometimes getting a sense of the whole conceptually is having a framework. And so having a framework for the concept of discipleship or disciple making is the following. That if you're going to be formed as a disciple or form disciples, you seek theological formation, formation of the mind, spiritual formation, the formation of the heart apostolic formation, or formation in action, and community, which is the context of formation. Mm -hmm. So those four dimensions, theological, spiritual, apostolic, and community. And as as I share those four categories in this framework for what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and a follower of Jesus who's going to grow, there are ways in which we can pay attention. We can put focus on, well, what am I doing to grow 
in my own theological formation, and then the same for the others. Mm -hmm. So as we uh, explore this together, um, I think that this is something that you have a real passion for, like what your emphasis on focus and the the emphasis that they have there, which is on discipleship making. Uh, I'll just pause and say, what do you think about that framework? Is there anything that jumps out at you? Is there any way that you'd want to tweak that or say, here's how I think about formation? Because I use what I just said, that framework, intentionally in my own life and in my family's life. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you have a framework that you use for understanding formation. Yeah, so it's, you know, the first thing that came to mind as you were outlining your framework was um, it seems very in keeping with what uh, Pope St. John Paul II laid out as a framework for seminary formation in Pastoris Dabovobis, which was a, an apostolic exhortation he published in the um, early 90s, I think, or late 80s, to, um, to, uh, to kind of bring new life and, um, and sense of purpose uh, into how seminaries go about the formation of their men. There's different words that you use, but the, how you described them is, is how he described them. So he calls them the intellectual formation, so still the mind, and the spiritual formation, so of the heart, and pastoral formation, or what you call apostolic uh, outreach, okay? And then human formation, how I am just simply as a human being and in relation and in communion with others. So it seems they are very of a piece. And, um, and I think it's, you know, he, he couched all of that into how seminaries ought to approach their, their work of forming future priests. And, um, and that's, you know, that's good, of course, and important. And then it dawned on me after I became a priest that really those are the four, he calls them the four pillars of formation. Really, those are the four pillars, I think, of Christian formation. All of us need to grow in our knowledge of the faith, our belief of the faith, our prayer life and spiritual life, our uh, service of the faith and service to others, and in our relationship with others. That's, those are four dimensions of all of us and our own approach to being strong, strengthened um, and um, and the life-giving witness, you know, disciples of Jesus Christ. So it, it's, you know, anyway, your framework is, you know, it, it jives right along with how I've been thinking, too, uh, nice. because of St. John Paul II. So I, I remember on uh, in a class I had uh, at the Gregorian on the church, and I, the, um, the professor was talking about the path of discipleship, and he drew... Um, basically, it would be like a, a target, like you're shooting bows and arrows at it or something like that, right? It's with concentric circles. Mm-hmm. And essentially, there were three rings. And so he then drew an arrow through the th- three rings. So it went from the left side, and then it went across the the three, the the outside boundary, the inside one, and then the central one. And then it went back out to the, uh, the then second circle, and then to the outside circle, and then out. And he said, here's the path of a disciple. First of all, you, you are, so the outside ring is evangelization. The inside ring is catechesis. And the central circle is liturgy, the, okay. worship. The sacraments. So, um, so he said that um, you begin your path as a disciple by being evangelized. That's the outside. You are evangelized. And then as you're catechized, you're initiated. You're initiated more fully into the church. And then when you get into the heart of the church, it's worship. It's liturgy. And then from there, you become catechized again, but this time to be formed in order to be able to go out. And then, uh, and so that's living as a disciple, but then you're called also to evangelize, to mm-hmm. go bring the gospel out into the world. And then he did a trick. 
he took the arrow and he drew it all the way back around to the beginning because guess what? You need to continue to be evangelized, continue to go deeper into that initiation, that reality of your life of faith. You come back to the heart of worship, which then leads you more fully back out into a time of formation, but then you're also called to evangelize, to go out into the world. Yeah. What do you think of that? I think that's a great image. You know, it's, um, I thought, <clears throat> I thought that, you know, our life of faith is much, you know, much like, um, people talk about cycles in their life and so on. And, and that's true. I thought of it as like an upward spiral. We're going to be coming around again to these same points, but it's like, for example, think of like the three-year lectionary cycle, A, B, and C. And right now we're in year C with a uh, emphasis, um, looking at the gospel. Father, you know, most people have no idea what you just meant when you said that. <laughs> I should probably you, clarify, right? Now, now you're talking like you're talking to a seminarian <laughs> or a priest here. So well, that is the topic, right? So the three-year lectionary cycle, when you go to Sunday mass, the gospel that you hear generally will be from Matthew. Mark, Luke, you know, or Luke, and then John supplements um, uh, Mark oftentimes. So, um, and they, anyway, after Vatican II, uh, there was a reform of the liturgy that included a three-year cycle. So the gospel that we're going to hear, you know, the 14th Sunday in Ordinary Time this year is the same gospel that we're going to hear in the 14th Sunday in Ordinary Time three years from now. And um, I think it's pretty genius because who I'm going to be three years from now is not the same person who I am now, even though I'm hearing the same words, but now I'm a, kind of a new person. I'm hearing it in a new way. And I think that's a, an example of this, what I mean by upward spirals, that when we come back around again, you know, we, we have made some growth and we got to keep, keep growing. So we're back at that. And, and so anyway, this arrow that goes through and then goes back to the start, if you could form that into a 3D image, I bet he would have it be kind of a spring, an upward spiral. And if we're engaging with the Lord's graces to grow as disciples, I think that's a, exactly what would be happening. We'd find ourselves in an, an, an upward progressing uh, cycle of evangelization. We're re-evangelized and then re-catechized, learning even deeper truths of our faith and engaging in the sacraments in a new way because of all of that. And um, and it's not just theory. I see it. I see it in the parishioners. You know, they'll come to me and say, "It just hit me that the Eucharist that is Jesus." I'm like, "You've been a Catholic all your life. You're just now realizing it." But what they're communicating is that you know maybe they had that that beautiful encounter at first communion and certain key moments of their life along the way, and then it it kind of fades. We kind of get used to it, becomes the norm, and it becomes stayed. And something happens, and then we're brought back in, into the heart of that reality. And and that's what they're describing to me. Nice. I love that. Uh, it's, uh, it, it has to do with that idea of like insight. You see into it at a whole new level. Yeah. And, and the richness of our faith is it has that depth. So one of the ways that um, I, when I would help parishes and dioceses reflect on how are they doing with discipleship making and, and living out the fullness of the faith is I would say map out those concentric circles in your parish life. And then ask yourself the question, start at the outside ring. The outside edge is being evangelized. Okay, what are we doing to evangelize those who are coming to us? Where are we preaching the gospel, asking people to make a commitment of their lives to Jesus? Mm -hmm. And then you can take it from there. What are we doing to deepen initiation and bring about a deeper initiation in the faith for those who are Catholic and maybe um, maybe they need their marriage um, 
brought into good order with right. the church. Maybe they, um, maybe they're just culturally Catholic, but help them to go deeper into the faith. And then you can take it all the way down, right? What are we doing to foster deeper worship and 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 uh, a greater sense of reverence at the liturgy? And then, what are we doing to make disciples to help them live as disciples day to day? So small groups and Bible studies and other things to help them grow in faith. And then, what are we doing as a parish? to evangelize in the world. Yeah. What are we doing to go and make disciples beyond the parish, back in their family lives, in their workplaces, right, in, in the world? Um, and it, it becomes a, like a wonderful tool mm-hmm. for evaluating the, like the totality of the life of a parish. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, if the, I've kind of had this idea all along that um, um, in various ways of describing it, that if we're not growing, we're shrinking. It's like a tree. It's always growing. And I've used this analogy one time at a Covadas Day as our summer camp for high school boys to start thinking about seminary. I said, our our process of discernment and really our lives of faith are like a shark. A shark has to keep moving or else it, if it's not moving, it's it's dead. That's how its gills work. And then you know, someone keeps bringing it up, you know, and then you wondered, what happens? How do sharks sleep? I don't know. They're weird, you know, but <laughs> regardless of that, but I mean, we got to keep moving forward. And as a parish, we got to keep doing that. As soon as we kind of get settled in, like, you know, we're good enough. We got a reasonably full church and people seem happy and that's good enough. As soon as we hear like good enough, those are pretty poisonous words. Nothing is good enough. Jesus demands of us holiness and perfection and good enough falls short of that. And so, you know, good enough is when Jesus comes to make into perfection, you know, you know, that's at the second coming. But until then, we have work to do. And that's a phrase I use a lot at the parish, you know, in homilies and such is we've got work to do. And, um, and there is no good enough. And um, so anyway, you know, I think a sign of a healthy parish is, is it, is, are we receiving people well? So just the storefront, as it were, do we have a a warmth and a welcoming kind of atmosphere as people enter? Or do they come in and like nobody greets them at the door and they don't feel welcome? I mean, that seems kind of shallow and surface, but it's so important because who knows, but that that's where that person was going to encounter Jesus in that moment. And we missed it. And um, so I've really tried to be- beef up our greeters and our usher ministry to greet people at the door with lanyards. My name is and with my business card in it, maybe Father would like to meet you here. You can contact him or whatever the case may be. And um, it's so simple a thing, but that's the first step. If they're not even, you could have the greatest you know, product in your store, but if the exterior of your storefront looks like a, you know, a Russian gulag prison, no one's going to go in to find out what you got inside. So we need that, that solid storefront, and then we need to back it up with the depth and the richness of of real faith and catechesis and the sacraments and liturgy. Amen. I I worked at a parish when I first left the seminary as a layperson, and the priest was very visionary, and uh, he hired me to direct evangelization efforts. And one of the things we did is we put in greeters, mm-hmm. and it ended up being a whole ministry. People yeah. became really good at it. It was an easy first step. We started tracking new members in the parish, and we were averaging. Um, one a day. So we were for six months, we had 180 families join. And when we asked them why, one in seven said, because they were greeted. That's how powerful that is. All right, we're up against a break. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Carnum with Father Jeff Lewis today. And we're focusing on formation. Uh, on Saturday, two days ago, 
but for us it's tomorrow because we're <laughs> recording this on Friday, is the uh, is the ordination of our uh, deacon here, our transitional deacon mm-hmm. in the uh, Diocese of Spokane. And um, on Monday, well, it's already happened. I can't ask you how it was <laughs> unless you want to make stuff up, Father. Um, and, but I do want to talk about um, ordination uh, celebrations uh, in, in in a little bit. I want to stay on the theme of formation, though, yeah. because we began the program by saying, if I want to be intentional about growing in faith, I can't do everything at once. And I can say, well, let me just take on the actions that typically people hear about when they say, oh, you're supposed to grow in faith. Here are the five things you do. Mm-hmm. But you can also be a bit more reflective, a bit more intentional about saying, I want to make sure that I'm hitting the most crucial things that are part of a, um, a, a path of discipleship. So let's stay with the seminary because I, I, have, a, I have an idea in my mind. I want to see if you can guess it. Okay? <laughs> so of those different aspects of formation, uh, the way that I framed it, mm-hmm. which was the theological, the spiritual, the apostolic, and community— mm-hmm. Uh, and let's put in human formation as well. Okay. Uh, let's add in yours, Father. So we got yours as John Paul II. So there's there's the fifth. Uh, um, where did the seminary, in your experience, put most of its attention? Intellectual. Um, so what what did you call it? Uh, theological. Theological. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. For formation sure. Formation of the mind. Yeah. Hands down. Yeah. And uh, it, it, well, I think that's by virtue of the fact of where I went to seminary. You know, so I, I entered seminary in 20, oh my gosh, 2006, I think. Yeah, January 2006. And so here in Spokane and a lot of uh, Northwest dioceses, they, they send their men for their college level formation with, you know, focusing on their studies in philosophy here to Spokane at Bishop White Seminary, which is attached to Gonzaga University. And uh, we have a very excellent philosophical um, faculty there. And um, so anyway, we do our philosophy there. And then uh, at that time, Spokane sent men for, to four different seminaries for the next level, so like graduate-level studies in theology. And one of those four was the Catholic University of America. That's where we did our classes. The seminary was called Theological College. And Catholic University of America has fantastic um, academics. And I think because of that, I mean, the emphasis on being solid um, you know, uh, scholars, you know, was, uh, was the approach. And, um, and I don't think that's necessarily a fault. I think that some seminaries just kind of have their strengths and, um, in, in, in it's demonstrated in what's kind of emphasized. I think that, for example, these days, St. Patrick's Seminary, where Bishop Daly sends a lot of our men now, which is down in uh, Menlo Park in San Francisco, they have a great uh, emphasis on pastoral formation, so how to do the, the priest craft service to the people of God uh, with humility and joy. Um, they may not have the same kind of height of scholarship and academics as, for example, Catholic University. So anyway, that was definitely the emphasis of where I went to seminary. Yeah, let me raise my hand. Uh-huh. Same for me. Uh, I was at St. John's Seminary College, and the faculty there was outstanding in terms of philosophical uh, uh, professors in philosophy and in theology and in scripture. Just beautiful, powerful, tremendous. And then going to Rome, uh, the emphasis was so heavily weighted towards our study at the universities outside the North American College. The North American College is where you'd have your pastoral formation. Yeah. 
and your spiritual formation and community formation, but it was at the Angelicum or the Gregorian that you had your theolo- theology classes. And, yeah. and I, you know, it's an easy principle to say, don't tell me what's important to you. Let me see how you live, how you spend your time, and then I'll tell you what's important to you. Yeah. And so if we took that simple idea and applied it to seminary formation, Say, don't tell me what's important to the seminary formation. Let me see how you spend your time, and then I'll tell you what's important in seminary formation. Mm-hmm. And it is clearly academics, yeah. studies, intellectual formation. But here, here's my challenge. My challenge was that, well, first of all, I, I love academics. I, I did well. Um, and, and so I had no problem like giving my mind over to all the academic pursuits, it was that um, it felt as if there were great losses that happened in the remaining parts of formation, but even in the academic side. Now, why? The reason was that not everyone's the same, gifted academically. These courses were hard, Mm -hmm. and it took a lot of time. And so there ended up being a lot of, let me cram, let me pass the test, flush, make room for the next content. Yep. And so I'm like, wait a minute, are we forming minds theologically through these classes, or are we simply asking the seminarians to memorize a whole bunch of stuff, they're going to learn it, but they're, what they're asking is, what do I need to do to get an A? What do I need to do right. to pass the test? And then, yeah, 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 there's some tidbits that stay, and there's like maybe a, a, an overarching puzzle piece, puzzle coming together in terms of like a theological mindset. But to be honest, as a guy that really loved theology, I did not see a lot of that yeah. uh, at the North American College. Yeah, I saw, I saw that a little better at, C, at CUA. I think some of our professors, I think, were very good at helping us to see what we were specifically focused on in, in that moment in our studies, how that uh, relates with the larger picture. Um, and not all of them did that, but but some did. And interestingly enough, the, the lay professors that we had were better at that than the priest professors. The priest professors were very focused on their specialty. Well, yeah, they were probably scholars. Right? Yeah, they were yeah. yeah scholars. Well, the lay professors were too, but they had the benefit of living with wives and kids in the quote-unquote real world. And so they have to be able to teach it and actually live it to be good Catholics and not just good scholars. Mm-hmm. And I think that was lent itself to them being able to help us to see that specific thing, how it applies to the larger whole. And, uh, and I, that appealed to me because as I was going theology, I didn't, I didn't want to settle in. I just need to memorize this, get in a flush. I was trying to approach all of it uh, with a great deal of prayer as well. And I wish I was better at that, but at least I was trying. And um, because I was always thinking like, how can this be useful for my future parishioners? And I would like take side notes, like this will be good, a good homily one day. You know, it's kind of how I was thinking, is this going to make for a good homily fodder? And I still on my computer have a whole file on my computer of like homily ideas that a lot of that was drawn from my academics and seminary. And I tap into that every now and again. So that was kind of my, my um, approach. And part of what Appeal again, you know why? Why that? Why I felt that was important. Why that worked for me is, you know, I, I was helped. I, it helped me to see the, the 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 specific parts how it applied to the larger whole. Okay, so um, let's let's take a little step deeper in now. 
so you had lots of professors. You found a number of them engaging and helpful in terms of um, not only handing on good content, but you were able to then say, how is this content applied to my future ministry? Which I love that, by the way. That idea that even your studies were an act of service to the community that you didn't even know yet. Yeah. That's really powerful. But can you remember a course or a professor or even a couple of like key insights around the concept of um, intellectual formation or theological formation that you found particularly helpful? Um, as as you've lived your life as a disciple, but now as a as a priest, mm-hmm. as a Catholic priest and disciple of Jesus Christ, um, again, a principle, an insight, a a um, a recommendation that you've taken away from your own theological formation that you want to hand on to the listeners, and say, here's something that I learned. You might want to think about this. Okay, um, gosh, um, I can throw several at you if you want. <laughs> yeah. Because you didn't know this was coming, so yeah. I'm, I'm actually giving you time as I'm kind of yeah, filling go ahead. some space Help me out here. here. Yeah. Let me give you several <laughs> that I got. Yeah. So one was uh, on a walk to the Gregorian with a guy who's now a bishop uh, in, down in Oregon, and uh, he said to me, um, one of the things that he learned was, be careful to whom you open your mind, because the one that you allow in to feed you is the one that's going to help shape how you look at things. Mm-hmm. And so for him that meant focus more on primary sources rather than the interpreters. Uh, because if, if, they were, if the interpreters were that good, that profound, then they would be primary sources themselves sure. and not just commentators. Sure. So be careful to whom you entrust your mind. Second one that goes along with that, I learned in my first class, my proto-seminar at my PhD program, which was if you really want to go deeper theologically, don't read widely read deeply, meaning there are only a few figures in the history of Catholic thought that are worthy of someone saying, I'm going to devote myself to their writings and give yourself over to them. Mm-hmm. Like who, who, who are the ones that, that were identified? Um, Not I, that complicated. Augustine, Augustine and Aquinas. Augustine and Aquinas were number one, two, right? Yeah. Absolutely one and two. Yeah. And there are very, very few beyond them mm-hmm. that are saying, master their corpus, and what will happen is you gain a whole way of seeing theology and God and faith. And I say one of the sadnesses of my life is that I'll never get through all of of Augustine. Nope. (laughs) There's just no way. There's like these 60 volumes. (laughs) That's just what's translated. Yeah. I just look at it with great sadness. And uh, Anyway, so those are a couple. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, when you were sharing that first one about, you know, the primary sources, you know, one of my favorite professors, and I think one of the great great ones at CUA, and I think he still teaches there, is uh, Monsignor uh, Paul McPartland, who's uh, a priest. I think he's a priest of Westminster, England, and I think he still is, but he lives and works in D.C. And he taught our course, um, he taught two courses for us on uh, Eucharistic theology and then, um, and then on... Um, on the, the priesthood, okay, and um, and you mentioned like you know, c- careful who you let into your mind. Stick with the primary sources, not someone's interpretation. Well, this this the primary texts of that course were um, were Saint Ignatius of Antioch was one we studied all of his letters because he's got such rich Eucharistic imagery throughout, and also you know 
priesthood. So where the bishop is, there's the church, I think is in one of his letters. And so he didn't necessarily teach us that principle, but nonetheless, that was something that I was concerned about. I was like, why are we reading all these people who are reading 20 centuries after the fact of Jesus himself? You know, how come we're not reading the saints themselves with commentaries on the saints? And I didn't have to wonder that in his class. He went right to the saints and the the original sources. Well, and that's where it's so helpful to have a good teacher, Mm -hmm. right? When I see folks, most folks that I encounter, when it comes to, like, Thomas Aquinas, it's just quote texting. Mm -hmm. They just grab a quote, and they're like, yeah, I know Aquinas. Here's this beautiful quote. When I'm like, that's in the Summa Theologica. Okay, let's take a look at the Summa. And it's difficult. You you can't just pick up the Summa and understand a lot of it right. unless you understand his categories. Right. These fundamental concepts and how they operate and how they link together and then how they build out. But once you get that, you swim in there, you scuba dive in there, you'll mm-hmm. never reach the bottom and you'll be overwhelmed. Now, just to say... It's not as if that is a, um, a barrier that is, in, you know, uncrossable, especially in the second part where he gets into the virtues. You can read so many of those questions. And even if you don't understand the categories, uh, you can still say, holy moly, mm-hmm. those insights blow you away. Mm-hmm. So I don't want it to appear as if it's somehow um, kind of Gnostic, right? right? It's for the elite only. I mean, he wrote that. He wrote the Summa for beginners, right? Which is so humbling <laughs> yeah. when you when you hear it like that. Dang, what do you write for the proficient, right? <laughs> the Summa contra gentiles. Anyways, um, so uh, are there any other like theological principles? I'll give you a couple that I found so very helpful mm-hmm. in my own life of faith. Um, the the first is grace builds on nature, mm-hmm. and another one is that for all that is the same between the natural and the supernatural, all that you would say is equal, there's a greater inequality between the two. Uh So revelation doesn't only confirm what we know by at the level of creation or at the level of reason. And so there's a continuity. But for all continuity that there is, there's a greater discontinuity. And what does that mean, right? (laughs) And, and so what that means is, is that you could say that God is good. Mm-hmm. God is good. There's continuity because we know what goodness is and we say that God is good. Well, greater discontinuity means that it's truer to say that God is not good. <laughs> what in the world? Well, it's, it's truer to say God is not good because the concept of human goodness is finite. God's goodness is infinite and the infinite infinitely overflows the capacity of the finite to contain it. And so it's truer to say God is not good than it is to say that God is good, not because God is not good, but because God's goodness so far surpasses, is so eminently beyond human goodness, you cannot even conceive it. Yeah, yeah. So that's training the mind Mm -hmm. to think in a certain way. Mm Mm-hmm. So there, there's mine. Grace yeah. builds on nature, and for all continuity, there's greater discontinuity. Yeah. We had a course that was just Christian anthropology where grace builds on nature was practically the the, the class motto. And um, and that might have been where it – I might have heard that phrase before, but where it really sunk in, and it really helped me to see everything. Like, I can't just – coast through life i've got god has given me graces all over the place again i'm thinking like how can this lesson be applied to my prisoners future prisoners and um and it's a it's a it's a fine it's a it's a happy medium between i gotta earn everything and do everything myself and 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 take you know that's 
all nature, no grace. And then there's, uh, you know, all grace and no nature where God is showering me with graces and I'm just, I'm just letting these, these diamonds and pearls fall on the ground behind me and I can't even be bothered to reach over and pick it up. You know, that, that grace builds on nature. Um, I use the, uh, the center panel of the Sistine Chapel where Adam just has to extend his finger and he connects with God. That's all he has to do. That's the only nature he has to put forth, and God provides the rest. I love that. Uh, Father, we're up against a break. When we come back, we'll keep building on this idea of grace builds on nature. Welcome back to Sound of Sight. This is Tom Curran, and I've got Father Lewis here, trapped. Trapped. Trapped, Father. And so we're talking about some of the, we're trying to mine some nuggets out of the time in the seminary and uh, just overarching concept of formation. So, folks, when you're hearing us talk, our goal is this. Our goal is to be able to say, when you think about the idea of growing as a disciple, there are some like beyond the basics ideas. And so one of them is have a framework for it and stop and ask yourself, what do I do to grow theologically? How do I, how do I form my mind intellectually as a part of advancing in my own uh, discipleship, my own following of the Lord? Uh, and I think that Theological formation or intellectual formation is so important. Guess what? For fathers, mm-hmm. and uh, do you know? Do you know why? You want to guess why? You want me to say it, and then Go you can ahead, build yeah. off it. So the reason why I say it is, I talk often with other married couples, and so many fathers, husbands, and fathers don't exercise spiritual leadership in the home because they feel inadequate when a very simple concept comes up. What do I, or a question comes up, what do I do if we bring up our faith and the kids start asking questions Uh and I'm not equipped to answer them? And so now I've moved out of my comfort zone. I'm in an awkward place. I don't really have, like I've got an inch, I've got a puddle when I need an ocean is what it feels like. So why even bother engaging with my kids in, spiritual or theological matters that frankly matter so much mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. So this conversation, Father, is really an attempt to say, hey, parents, get equipped. Seek to be intentional about formation. Otherwise, you're going to face some real interior and situational obstacles to fulfilling your own parental, God-given stewardship to help lead, provide, and protect your kids when it comes to what they believe. Right. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, God, all kinds of thoughts. The first thought is, uh, so especially for listeners who are fathers and husbands, if that question should come up and you don't know the answer, believe it or not, it is okay to say, you know, that's a very good question. I don't know the answer. But don't leave it at that. Say, here, here, let, here's, the, let, here's an idea. Let's ask Father when we see him at Mass this Sunday, and let's see what he can tell us. And I think what that's doing is several things. You're showing uh, confidence and humility. You're not trying to make things up and stumbling all over yourselves because, you know, your kids, the younger they are, the more savvy they are. They know when you're just feeding them nonsense. They really do. So don't try to feed them nonsense. Don't try to make something up on the fly. Just in humble confidence say, you know, that's a good question. I don't know the answer. Let's ask Father together when we see him at Mass. And then ask Father. Here's an, and, and so this is my second thought is that, and this is for everyone, wanting to 
to to gr- genuinely grow and and be more deliberate and intentional in their formation as Christian disciples, I think uh, it's frankly foolhardy to try to do it alone. I can't remember which saint it was. I believe it was Saint Teresa of Avila who said that uh, those who would seek their own um, those who see themselves as their own spirit director are, are being directed by a fool. You know, I, that's way off, but she uses fool. That's a word. It sounds good. Just throw a name of a saint. <laughs> yeah, in front yeah. Of it. There's a technique, yeah. folks. Right? So, <laughs> sounds it sounds yeah. pretty wise, right? But you know, the, the, your your parish priests are are vastly. You know, people think, oh, Father's so busy. The reason why I'm so busy is because when I encourage people to see me for spiritual direction or counseling or just ask questions, and I set meetings with them, that's why my calendar is full. Is because people are taking me up on that offer. Our parish priests, well, priests anywhere, but our parish priests where we go to worship are such an untapped potential. If all we think our priest does for us is celebrate the Sunday Mass and feed us the Eucharist, that's important, of course, and maybe the, the most important thing that the priest can do. But it's not the only thing that the priest can do. So if you want to grow in your faith, you know, assign a, you know, you know, call them up, get an, an appointment to meet with them, and just say, I need. I want to kind of get some ideas on how to grow in my faith and and have a guidance, and so that brings me back to the father and their child. Like, go to the priest because you're showing your child several things that my father doesn't know everything, but he wants to know everything. That's a good witness and encourages them to want to be learners too. And that's what the word disciple means, anyway. Is is learner, and you're showing. Oh, priests are real people too that actually can talk and actually. Uh, want to relate with us. So when you take your kid to go see a priest at Mass to ask that question, you're showing that this is okay to do and that the priest is a normal person. And maybe the priest says, you know what, that's a good question. I don't think I know the answer to that. Tell you what, let's the three of us turn to the catechism or some other resource and let's look at that together and talk about it. It's that relationality of discipleship formation. So now it's not just learning our faith, but we're relating with our faith. We're pilgrims on a journey together, all through that simple question that your child asks. Well, and Father, what I like about what you just said was that people can go online and they can like watch a video or listen to a podcast or read up on something, but but it's different than the interactivity that happens when you talk to a live person. Mm-hmm. So when you go to Father, you can say, well, here's my question. Well, it's not actually like that. It's more like this. And then you can act, clarify and you can then say, okay, let's go over here. Let's apply this over here. Versus when you're trying to read the information yourself, it's like, well, that's not exactly what I meant. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, maybe that's kind of the answer. Or can I even trust this person? Mm-hmm. So you have so you have like a, a, like a, a nest of additional challenges if the only thing you do is to try to figure it all out on your own. Mm-hmm. So go to your priest. What a what a great um, what a great suggestion, Father. Yeah. Of course, now you're going to be completely overwhelmed because and you just invited <laughs> it. I just want you to yep. know that. All my my phone lines are open, receiving calls now. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's go to human formation. And we were talking about grace builds on nature. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a human practice? that you have found, because here's the way I look at Grace Builds on Nature in part, is that uh, human nature is like a foundation for a building. And if you the, the stronger and wider the foundation, the higher you can build on that. Mm-hmm. And so having a good solid foundation at a human level is something that grace then will accentuate. A simple example is women's intuition is a wonderful human foundation for the gift of counsel. 
So that spiritual gift will be operating in a more mature and dynamic way in a, typically a woman who has this like capacity to see into what's going on over there. I see exactly what's going on. I'm like, what, Carrie? I have no idea what you're talking about. She, Can't you see that? And I'm like, I don't have the intuition that you have. Well, God's grace elevates that to a whole other level. So grace builds on nature. Is there a particular, particular natural capacity that you have found helpful to recommend to people that then the Lord will use in on in a graceful way to advance to elevate them spiritually because I have one and I can just say what do you think about it if you mm-hmm. want mm-hmm. um you me personally what yeah if what, you have one it's maybe for yourself or yeah. maybe for something that you recommend something that you were formed in in the seminary yeah you know I think that uh maybe a, a natural aspect of my character and people who know me at all would nod their heads vigorously at this is that I'm pretty extroverted. <laughs> and, you know, by that, you know, people can be outgoing and still be introverted, believe it or not. But people are you know, truly extroverted. What that means is where do you draw your energy from without or from within? And if, if I am with people all day, right up to the end of the day, it takes me an hour and a half to fall asleep because I've got all this energy. And so I got to sit down and read a book by myself, and then I can be drained immediately. And um, so anyway, I'm pretty extroverted, which is, um, you know, I know that there's, uh, I was, you know, part of the seminary application process, you go through psychological screening. So it's a psychological fact that I am much more extroverted than the average priest and seminarian. So there you go, folks. Um, anyway, so how did how can I use this, whatever, this natural characteristic of me, you know, for the forces of good, as it were? You know, I connected that with this idea that I picked up along the way in seminary, this is three-word three simple phrase, ministry of presence, that um, I may not necessarily be, be doing anything that's focused explicitly on Christ or the faith or something, but me just being with the people, with the collar on, and me just being me um, has seems to have such uh, a, per, a great effect. You know, I, at least I observe people just seem to be drawn to that you know for example my you know our, our school we got we're in the midst of our baseball season and so i was watching our eighth grade boys well eighth grade and seventh grade and a couple of sixth graders are on our team uh playing one of the other schools and you know and i show up and and all the parents are like waving and all the kids they're supposed to be focused on the game and they turn toward me and they're waving and the coach has to says get your head in the game so you know there's something about that and maybe like well father's here now and um who knows but if they stepped up their game or who knows what but but using that for the forces of good that was a natural gift that if i'm intentional about it i can so i'm intentional about it by reminding myself ministry of presence where i go I love that. And I've shared the story on Sound Insight before that when we showed up with our U-Hauls on the day we moved in, <laughs> who's there? It's like 40 people, and in the midst of them is Father Lewis. Yeah. I was I was in awe. I was I was amazed. And your ministry of presence was also very active. Back in a minute. Do you have a comment or question about today's Sound Insight radio program? Sound Insight with Dr. Tom Curran is produced by Sacred Heart Radio, and listener feedback is welcome. Give us a call at 800-949-1050. That's 800-949-1050. If you enjoy listening to Sound Insight, donations can be made online at sacredheartradio.org. 
and thank you to all of our generous donors. Welcome back to Sun Insight. This is Tom Carnum with Father Jeff Lewis. So Grace Builds on Nature and the Ministry of Presence. Uh, I'm reminded of action follows being. Mm-hmm. Action fo- and being follows action, right? That maybe is more for an apostolic <laughs> one. We'll, we'll get to that one. The one that it's interesting because I'm an introvert. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the idea of going out and spending all your time with people and you get home and you're all like buzzed and mm-hmm. it's going to take you an hour and a half to fall asleep. I'm exhausted and I immediately fall asleep. Mm-hmm. So it's funny because I would sit and read a book and that would energize me. Mm-hmm. But here's where Grace Builds on Nature fits in is that there's something about, let's call it an introvert, that tends to be a bit more contemplative rather than active. And I, one of the things that I really believe is a loss in our time is a lack of the contemplative attitude. And that is not just contemplation of the Blessed Sacrament and adoration. It's the human attitude of the philosopher, the one who stands in wonder in front of the world around them. They're not actively trying to say, how can I use, produce, manipulate, fix, do something here, but how am I simply present here before the world around me? And I consider that a big antidote to the overarching scientific mindset that is the world is an object that I can analyze, slice and dice, and do stuff with. And so the worker, the scientist, needs the contemplative. And if you can build out a human level of that contemplative attitude, the idea of how can you simply learn to be still, be present, guess what's going to happen? When you go to adoration, when you go to Mass, you're not going to get fidgety. You're not going to be as quick to just have your mind fly off into different directions and say, I need to fill my time with something because if I'm just sitting here, I'm not doing anything, Mm -hmm. which is such a loss. Mm -hmm. So grace building on nature, having a fostering at a human level of silence, solitude, and a contemplative gaze, a, a philosophical gaze, upon the, uh, the, the, the life that you have in front of you is so important. Yeah. You know, there's a word for that, this natural contemplation. You know, the word is wonder. We've lost a sense of wonder. And, um, you know, it's, it's increasingly hard for people to just kind of, you know, be in nature and wonder at it. We've got to be hiking for exercise. We've got to be doing dirt biking or, you know, rock climbing or these things, like these great accomplishments and achievements, you know, for, you know, and I, I think about that when I, you know, one of my great um, favorite, um, you know, pastimes is a pretty introverted thing, I think, is is going hikes by myself, long hikes. And because, you know, I want to recapture the sense of wonder at the world around me, for example. And, um, you know, just this past week, I went hiking at a in an area here in Spokane Valley called Antoine Summit. And I don't know how many people know about it and how many of those people hike it. But I wonder how many of those people who hike it actually stop and wonder at the wildflowers in bloom. I counted 20 different wildflowers that I identified. And people are like, wow, you actually counted them? I said, yeah, and you should try it. They're beautiful. And that's just one aspect of like kind of the wonderment of where I'm finding myself. And because I am extroverted and tend to be more active, I have to like 
stop myself and catch myself to do that. You know, when I was in a pilgrimage um, after ordination in, in Rome, and I was going through the Vatican museums, and it was struck me with great sorrow that this flood of humanity is just pressing through, stopping maybe for half a second to take a picture and keep going. It's like, you are surrounded by timeless works of art by you know that, that not everyone gets to see. And a picture, you can buy a postcard that's a better picture than yours, I guarantee it. So I literally had to like press myself to the sidewall away from the crowd to just lose myself in wonder at these beautiful works of artistic creativity and, um, and, and keep the camera in my pocket or whatever so I could just absorb it. And, um, and when I did that, those are some of the most memorable moments of my time in Rome is when I didn't have the camera going and when I wasn't rushing through because I wanted to lose myself in that wonder. You know, it's, uh, and that also brings up the concept of it, we don't have an infinite capacity or an unlimited capacity to wonder at things. It's sort of like running. Mm-hmm. You, you're gonna have. You're gonna run out. You're gonna. You're gonna say, "Okay, I can't run a marathon or 50 miles or 100 miles. I can only run a quarter mile, and I'm limping, mm-hmm. right?" Um, and so I would do this to develop my human formation. When I was in Rome, I would go to a museum once a week, and when I would go to the Vatican Museum, I would. Um, like head down, go through the museum until I got to a separate section. I wanted to preserve my capacity to wonder. Mm-hmm. And so when you were talking about that, I immediately thought of what happens because um, all of the Vatican Museum tours end up where? The Sistine At Chapel. The Sistine Chapel. Yeah. There's a however. When you come out of the Sistine Chapel, you don't exit out into a parking lot. You walk through these hallways to then eventually get to the stairwell that you kind of wind down and you then go out. Those hallways are filled with treasures. Yeah. So I remember one time I head down through the entire museum, through the Sistine Chapel, just so I could stop and appreciate what was on the back side of the Sistine Chapel, where literally 99 out of 100 people are just like on their way out now. Yeah. Okay, I'm done. I'm moving on. Because you know why? Their, their capacity has been drained. Mm-hmm. They're drained, and they have no more capacity to appreciate what it is that's in front of them. Yeah. So I, just to say, I do encourage folks that that kind of um, appreciation or wonder, that stance, it's a capacity like, um, like having breath to, to run mm-hmm. or having your body, I can do this particular exercise, like a hike or whatever. It's, it's something that you have to exercise yeah. and then you'll grow in it. Yeah. Concretely, I've talked about it a hundred times before in Sound Insight. I'll only mention it in passing. We would do quiet times with our kids. Mm-hmm. We'd have them sit in silence and eventually we had it 30 minutes. All the kids sitting together in silence. And it wasn't that they were listening to music. It wasn't that they were reading books. They were learning to sit contemplatively and pay attention to the world around them, to what was happening in their midst, and then what was happening inside of them. And then I would have them share what was it that was showing up. Just a total attempt to foster a contemplative attitude. I don't know how much fruit it bore, but, you know. (laughs) It was a noble effort. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so uh, we have time for one more kind of formation. Do you want to go to community? apostolic or spiritual formation. And I'll put it this way. In the seminary, when you think about those types of formation, which was the least attended to of those types of formation? In my seminary, uh, uh, pastoral. Pastoral. Yeah. 
uh, pastoral formation basically amounted to we're gonna we're gonna assign you to a hospital for your year. We're gonna assign you to this parish, and um, and I wonder how much oversight there was to make sure that it was a, actually a good fit. My first uh, pastoral assignment in seminary was I thought it was supposed to be some kind of like outreach, uh, a Franciscan outreach to um, to survivors of torture. This is an actual ministry, and there was a lot of African nationals living in D.C. that would receive uh, some care there. So I thought I was going to go in and like shadow somebody in some counseling conversations or thing like that. And they were just having me do database kind of a thing, and I'm not even a computer guy. And I, I, and I went back to the seminary and said, this was kind of a, I'm sure it helped them, but it didn't help me. And it was kind of a, a, you know, a useless in that regard. And the seminary had no idea. There was just not enough oversight to make sure that I was actually going to be formed in some pastoral way and not just a body to do jobs so that no one else would have to do it. They could go do other things. But um, and then the work at the hospital was good, but I mean it was it was kind of, it was very compartmentalized. That's what I'm trying to get at. Is that it, I didn't see a lot of integration. It's kind of like a bolt on. Yeah, it was a. It, it, that's a great. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's exactly it. We had what we're doing in the seminary, and then go do this, but then come back, and um, not a whole lot of. I didn't perceive a whole lot of integration of what we're doing in the house versus what we were receiving outside of the house. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, I I agree. I agree. It was the same experience I had in Rome. And there were some cool opportunities to, like, I worked with Mother Teresa's sisters at a soup kitchen. Mm -hmm. And that was powerful, but it was one hour, once a week. Mm -hmm. And we'd go down and we'd serve a meal and we'd leave. And how is that essentially connected to the work of being formed to be a priest? That was less clear. It wasn't that clear. And, um, And so it was much more something I had to do on my own. Um, I want to end though with this one, and that was communal formation. Okay. I felt it was terrible, <laughs> uh, I, and so I I made a distinction to the faculty. I said, "Are we brothers in Christ, or are we guys who happen to share a room on the same hallway?" You know, and oh, by the way, we're also both preparing for the priesthood. Mm-hmm. That sense of brothers is that sense of, look, I'm going to live and die for you. I'm here to support, encourage, and hold you accountable. The Lord has called us together for a purpose. Let's pursue that purpose together. Yeah. That was very weak. It was, it was not ex- really, it was so little in the program itself. It had to do really with the friends you had. Yeah. Um, I was going to say the opposite, that it wasn't, I think there was some de- deliberate effort on the part of the seminary, but it was definitely present nonetheless. Like I did see my brother seminarians as brother seminarians and not just convenient housemates or something like that. And we had prayer groups together and we were like... Now, know, was that assigned or was that... Uh, it, it was, was self-initiated. So okay, there what, you go. So that but, was what I was going to say. Yeah, right? Is yeah. that? But I mean, but we self-initiated, but then there was a faculty member that came afterwards that really liked the fruits of that. And then it became part of the organized formation. So wow. it had like a reverse effect on the seminary. Oh, that's powerful. Yeah, yeah. It was it was job really fun, good. Lewis. I love it. Oh, I wish I could take credit, but it was really a house-wide effort. I mean, nice. we, we really had a good brotherhood. Well, Father, you made it through the hour. Hey. Great job. <laughs> Great job. You're like, please, Father Nagel, come back. <laughs> all right. Thank you all so much for listening today. Join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight. God bless your day.